you have to have some kind of a support, I think. Once you, once you sense that and you feel that you got that support and you got, you got some backing, then you can start. Start small, one step at a time. This is Can Do, a podcast that explores the essential lessons for business success. As the world continues to feel the effects of the coronavirus, uncertainty and unpredictability have become the status quo. It has never been more important to learn from entrepreneurs and industry experts about their experiences and to hear their advice. Whether you're a business owner or entrepreneur, your career is affected by the current economic climate. Lessons shared by our guests can help you make informed decisions about your future. I'm your host, Arnie Sherman. Dr. Joe McDonald is a Montana visionary. He began his long career as a smoke jumper, then went on to be a teacher and coach in high school and college. Joe founded Salish Kootenai College in 1977 without funding, buildings, faculty, or students. By the time he retired 33 years later, Salish Kootenai College had become one of the nation's most admired tribal colleges. Now 88, he continues to mentor young indigenous leaders. Today on Can Do, you'll hear what motivated Joe McDonald to be an educator and community innovator for over five decades. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by the Dennis and Phyllis Washington Foundation, dedicated to investing in people to improve the quality of their lives. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. Joe McDonald, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well. I really appreciate your joining me and, and sharing uh, the history of uh, Salish Kootenai College and, and your, your involvement, uh, you know, over five decades. So why do tribal colleges exist in the first place, Joe? Well, it, you know, it, it's only been a century since most of them have moved on reservations and forced into uh, government schools. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, pressed into the mainstream, the pressure of all that. It's, it's been a, really a relatively short time when you look back. It all started about eight, 1890, probably for our group here in western Montana. It was 1892. So <clears throat> it's been a very short time. And, and uh, to keep up in the mainstream, uh, to, you know, be able to, uh, for our tribe to be able to exist and compete and serve the people well. Uh, it just takes a lot of educated people and, and uh, we just didn't have them on the reservations. Uh, the BIA and Indian Health Service would, uh, would advertise and bring people onto the reservation and uh, to work and uh, our Indian people would be the, you know, the aides and the janitors and the, but they wouldn't be the people making, doing the actual work. And uh, when in after the war on poverty, when President Nixon got elected, <clears throat> there was a, uh, uh, he championed a, a cause of, we called self-determination. And with self-determination, the legislation allowed tribes to contract any program that the BIA had on a reservation or any program that the Indian Health Service had. And it could even go farther to say any interior uh, program uh, operating on a reservation, the tribe could contract. So we had all this opportunity, but tribes all over the nation didn't have the people to do it. 
And so out of that was born the tribal colleges, the first one being at Navajo Community College. It's since changed its name to Diné. And then some schools and tribes in uh, South Dakota and North Dakota jumped in, and a tribe in Nebraska, and uh, even a little lost tribe down in, uh, in uh, California. Uh, they were a group from San Francisco that went out and formed a reservation on a, uh, some land that was re reserved for a military out, uh, out near Sacramento. So Joe, was the perceived need that the existing college structure did not lend itself well to uh, indigenous people's, uh, you know, entry? No, the, the, the General Accounting Office did a, did a study. After the war on poverty, there were a lot of grants where Indians could go to college, <clears throat> and many of them did. But the GAO did a study in seven, 1976 and found, you know, some horrendous results of that. They found that over half of the students that started as freshmen didn't finish even the first year. <clears throat> and they found that it took, uh, you know, normally it would take eight semesters to graduate. It was taking Indians 12 semesters. And students were graduating, you know, with a B, B average or C plus average. And uh, the Indian students were graduating, you know, with a C average. And it was things like that that, that uh, spurned the colleges. And, you know, why weren't they working well? You know, it was really hard for people to leave their families, Indian families, if they had elders to take care of or children to take care of. It was real. Even coming from RLE to Missoula is a big thing for them to go onto that campus at the University of Montana and meet all those people and stand in those lines to graduate and to get their meals and all that. It's 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 quite it's a quite an event for them and it's it was very difficult for them and. Uh, the, college, the universities at that time weren't prepared to receive the Indian students. You know, they wanted to and they did the best they could, but the Native American Studies programs hadn't started yet. And uh, Native American Studies programs kind of came along with tribal colleges so that so students, you know, transfer from the tribal college to a university very well, or many of them go directly from the reservation to the college and do very well now. So back in 1976, there's grants coming in. There's a change in public policy. You're an educator. Why did you decide to take this on from scratch? I mean, there was there was no footprint for college, you know, in in the, in the Salish Kootenai area. Why did you take this on? Well, I was at the time I was a, I was as, along with being high school principal, I uh, was a, a tribal councilman also, <laughs> and. Uh, People would come to the tribal council and ask for money to start something or do something, and we'd never see or hear of them again. And uh, our tribal tribe, we tried to keep our expenses down and pay a per capita payment to each tribal member at the end of each year. And uh, so I did not want to get involved in taking money away from the people's per capita payment. And uh, so we just started, there were grants available, there was a Higher Education Act and there was Title III of the Higher Education Act that uh, provided um, funds for colleges to reach out to the underserved area. And so we got Flathead Valley Community College to apply for those funds and reach out to the Blackfeet Reservation and to this reservation uh, to get started. And, and I became the director of that program at Flathead Valley. And so we had a little money, Arnie. We had 
I think like $30,000, it was a $100,000 grant. And uh, so we had like $30,000 to spend here and, and we hired a director. Didn't have to pay him a lot in those days, 16000 or something like that. And uh, a little mileage and uh, bummed our way around the reservation. We, being a former uh, school principal, I knew how protective schools were and I knew all the school people. So we could talk our way into the RLE school or St. Ignatius school and use their typewriters in those days and use their shop and use their home ec room. But I knew better than to go in there, you know, alone. And so we, we tried to hire the teachers from those areas that were teaching in those places to be the teachers. And so we really got their support right away because it was extra money for them and we could use their facilities. And so it, so it all kind of worked out. And then, then we got, uh, by 1978, we got legislation passed that supported tribal colleges. And, uh, and uh, President Carter signed the bill in 1978, an evening before Thanksgiving, and a memorable time. And uh, then we had to get an appropriation, and we worked through Congress to get an appropriation. And finally, we got our money uh, for each Indian student. We got what, what the appropriated money amount was divided by the number of Indian students in all the tribal colleges that were in existence at that time. <clears throat> and so we got like $1,900 per student or $2,000 per student. And uh, that was like money from home because that was uh, money that, you know, wasn't earmarked. Because in a grant, you've got to stay with the grant. And, and uh, we bent the grants quite a bit. Uh, we would call like a student support services grant. The director of student support service was, became our vice president for student affairs. <laughs> and uh, we had, you know, did things like that. I, I was the director of the Title III and I was the president. And uh, we bent things around and the government was very good about it. The auditors were good about it. And the people that came out to visit from Washington, D.C. were good about it. They knew what we were trying to do. And you, you can't do it today, but we were able to do it at that time. Starting any business is a daunting task. A college seems to be, you know, even a larger one. What made you think you could do it? Well, we just, we, right away we knew, I, as high school principal, I started a uh, adult basic education program. And I got money from the state and from the tribe. And we brought in people and, and prepared them for a GED program, uh, test. And I didn't want to just do a straight, you know, question and answer thing for the test. I wanted to get a broader education. So while they were doing the, the uh, study for the, t for the test, I gave them a broader history program where they had, you know, studied some history. And in the reading, we studied some literature and uh, we provided them some of the extras like home ec and some of those extra classes. And it w was a very successful program. So they got their GEDs and then they wanted more. And uh, that was a problem. I, I thought of a bus. I tried to get a grant to get a bus that would start up at Elmo and drive, pick people all the way up to, uh, to Evero and drop them off at the Missoula Business College that was going at that time, Missoula Votech, the University of Montana. And then about four o'clock, I'd make around, pick them all up and bring them back. <clears throat> it wasn't really a unique idea because I learned later that they were actually doing that in the in Kentucky and West Virginia and those places. They actually had buses with study carols and all and people did that. And uh, well anyway that 
that went by the wayside. And then when we heard of Title III, uh, that we thought that would be the real way to go. And it really was. And I was very lucky in being able to hire a very good uh, assistant for down here, Mike O'Donnell. He got his doctorate later at the University of Montana. And he was very innovative. And uh, he and I worked very well together. And, 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 for, and for our listeners, can you explain what Title III money allowed you to do? It would just uh, allow you to provide classes, you know, in these remote places like for Flathead Valley, Kalispell, the reservation here was the remote place. And so to provide those classes, we need money for the pay the part-time instructors. <clears throat> we need a coordinator for that. And, uh, and so that's, and we could do any course that Flathead Valley offered. And, and, and so we did that. And we did the same thing at Blackfeet, had a coordinator there. and had a little bit more of an office. She had more staff at Blackfeet. But uh, <clears throat> both, both of them worked very well, and, and, and it worked that way. Uh, we were able to do it that way. So you're starting to launch the college. Obviously, there are plans for the future, buildings and, you know, um, building maintenance and recruiting students and all these things that are a little bit different than what a high school principal does. Were you able to find a good group of advisors and, and uh, um, staff that helped, you know, round out, you know, this vision? We were very fortunate. We had a lot of, uh, quite a few people who were very, very interested in education. <clears throat> Some of them had gone successfully through the University of Montana, had jobs on the reservation. Uh, and so they, they were a core that we used. And not all of them were professionally trained. <clears throat> Some were, you know, tribal elders. Uh, tribal elders were very, very interested in this because the other thing was happening here on the reservation is a loss of culture, and uh, the uh, the our elders really wanted a, a way to maintain the culture. They really wanted to teach, but they needed a format to be able to follow to teach, and the college did that. We were able to arrange classes in drumming and singing. Uh, we were able to arrange classes in hymn singing. Uh, classes in Salish language, uh, Kootenai language. Uh, we're able to do hide tanning, uh, beading, all those cultural things that, that the people wanted, we were able to do. And so we had great support from the, uh, from the tribal elders in, in doing that. And so the tribal elders and then this committee of <coughs> parents uh, and uh, committee of uh, uh, people that had gone to college and come back had college jobs were really the pushers for the whole thing. So I wasn't alone. I had I was just leading a whole large group that wanted this. <laughs> you bring up the cultural, you know, issues and trying to maintain the cultural history and the integrity of uh, of that whole process. You know, you fast forward to today with uh, you know backlash related to critical race theory and and. Uh, you know, maybe adding fresh insults to indigenous people. Has education changed at the tribal college as a result of these kinds of pressures? Oh, very much so, yeah. Because every student that comes <clears throat> becomes an advocate for us. And we, we have non-Indian students as well as Indian students. And they also impact their families. And so <clears throat> it re re it's really been a big help. We, we naturally have that same, you know, critical race theory people that don't like that uh, 
and we're kind of a hotbed as a matter of fact in this area but but we we have a lot of people that are on on the side of uh of uh, cultural orientation and cultural knowledge and helping the tribe get their culture uh, maintained. I work with George Dennison real closely on trying to get teachers uh, trained to come on a reservation, be more knowledgeable. <clears throat> it's a little different coming, you know, going to Great Falls to teach or, or Thompson Falls to teach is coming to Ronan or, or uh, St. Ignatius. And, and teachers need to be aware <clears throat> you know of the learning differences and different expectations and uh, so we, we have that I think uh, pretty well you know we've changed if you go into the Ronan schools now and we'll still have George Washington there but we'll have Chief Charlo there too and uh, mm -hmm. and we'll have his picture along with that and we'll honor uh, Indian students so that they feel like they're accepted there and and when we do history classes, we hope that, that they include the Indian history and the Indian point of view, you know, without causing big disruptions in the class and all that, but it can, can gently be told, you know, what happened to the Salish and how they got forced out of the Bitterroot and how the soldiers brought them up over Evero Hill and, and brought them down into the Arli country. It can be done gently without causing a big row in the classroom and in the community. And Committee's always sitting there, you know, uh, ready to attack you about something. Uh, we got attacked early on sex education, you know, we got through that. And, and, uh, and then Indian education, we went through that route, but it's all pretty well resolved now, I think, and doing pretty well. And for our listeners, you mentioned George Dennison, and George was the long-tenured president of the University of Montana, longest-tenured president at the University of Montana, and was a good partner to Salish Kootenai College. Oh, he was a great partner, yeah. Well, the whole university was, the staff, deans, you know, they were all very good. Yeah, that dean of business there, he was really uh, exceptional. I'm speaking with Dr. Joe McDonald, educator and founder of Salish Kootenai College. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by Montana Rail Link committed to safely delivering transportation solutions to their customers and partners. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. As you were growing Salish Kootenai College, you were wearing many hats. One of them was serving on the Tribal Council. How did that fit in with what you were doing as, as president of a college? Oh, it fit in beautifully. It just fit in beautifully because I was a high school principal. Uh, and that gave me access to, you know, the superintendents and principals around us so we, we could access facilities. <clears throat> The tribal council uh, had their support, and then they, uh, I was delegated to, the, to be their delegate to affiliated tribes of Northwest Indians, and I got elected president of that. And uh, so that was a, you know, a, when we had the support, when we would get a resolution passed by our tribal council supporting the tribal college or supporting funding for the tribal college, I could then take it to the affiliated tribes and get a similar resolution and then I was a delegate to the National Congress of American Indians, and I would go there and present the 
present that and get that passed by the National Congress. And so when I went to see Max Blockus, you know, or, or Pat Williams, I had a, you know, I had a lot of people behind me, I had a lot of tribes uh, throughout the nation and throughout the Northwest. <clears throat> so that really did help that way. The other thing too is, is I tried to do tribal business at the same time. I didn't try to just be focused and I, I got criticized one time for that, but my answer was no, I do a lot of tribal business at the same time. And, uh, and so the tribe paid my travel, much of my travel. And uh, we didn't have to nick the, our little budget for, for my travel. The, the tribal council could do that. And uh, so that was a, was a big help there too. And that was a big help uh, getting uh, support of the tribal organization, the various departments. Uh, you know, I'd ask them, you know, what do you need? You know, where, what kind of training would you need? What, what can we do for you? And they were anxious to step in and respond. I'm not sure they would have if I'd have just been a person from the community. What were your biggest challenges in, in this whole process? I mean, I know it, it uh, you know, unfolded over, uh, you know, 30 plus years, but, but you know, as you look back, what were the biggest challenges you faced? The challenges were funding. Funding was a tremendous challenge. And uh, getting money for facilities and equipment, you know, was a challenge. We'd, we'd put it in each grant that we wrote and, and get facilities and equipment in there. And we'd use uh, money from, uh, we were the, probably the first college, tribal college, to charge tuition. You know, a lot of tribes, they didn't charge their students, but we did. And the other thing I learned from my brief experience teaching in, at, at Northern Montana College in Flathead Valley was that uh, need for a building fee. And so right away we had a building fee they used to tease me about a building fee. You know, you don't have any buildings. Why? We <laughs> well, the building fee resulted in buildings. You know, we were able to pay. We wonder why we have these little brown buildings all around our campus. Well, each one is paid for. We tried not to accrue any debt, and when we got a hundred thousand dollars. We'd build a building. And uh, the other thing we did that was was unique is we had a carpentry program because the tribe had a housing, they call it the HIP Home Improvement Program through the federal government, and it was called a HIP program or something. And, and the people on, unemployed people would work for HIP and do these remodeling jobs in people's homes, and they, they made a, quite a few mistakes. And so right away we named that as, as one of our curriculum areas would be carpentry training. And we talked to HIP people and led us have their students, have their people be our students. And so two days a week we'd teach them and two days a week we'd go out on the job with them. And, uh, and so that became a, a, a real good program. And out of that, then I said, well, do you think you could build a building? Could you build a garage? Well, they built a garage in no time at all, a six stall garage. So then I said, could you build a classroom building? Well, they worked all summer, had got everything all ready. And in the fall when the students came, uh, we hired them. We they had to do uh, their classroom work, and they had to do ten hours of lab for their program. But we'd pay them the other twenty hours, and we'd pay them Davis Bacon wages, and uh, they put that classroom up building in that in that school year. It was pretty amazing. And so then we went to another building, another building, another building. So so from those humble beginnings, Joe, can you describe to our listeners what the campus is like now, and how many students and 
you know, what's the, how vibrant is uh, Salish Kootenai College in 20, as we head into 2022? Well, we selected a, <clears throat> an area right across from the tribal office in the big city of Pablo, Montana. Pablo is so big that the welcome and the goodbye sign are on the same post. <laughs> and as you go by that post, you look off to, towards the mountains and you see Salish Kootenai College. And it's, you know, nice, well-kept buildings, well, nice, well-kept grounds. Uh, but they're all about, uh, you know, 120, 140 feet long and probably 40, 50 feet wide type buildings. And we've tried to interrupt them a little bit to give a little uh, look, look to it. And then, and then you see just part of our campus from the highway. And if you drive into the campus, then on behind, uh, away from the road is other campus buildings and student housing and uh, beautiful art building and and right next to the road is a large nice gymnasium and uh, we're fortunate we one of our accreditation visits they said we need to have a building plan and so we fortunately hired an architect to help us with a building plan and and I was going to put the gym way in the back you know and uh, no it's got to be right near the highway so people can get in and out and that was a very good thing that the architect did for us. So we have a nice uh, gymnasium and fitness center and auditorium uh, right near the highway as you drive off the highway. And uh, we have a nice golf course, uh, a nine hole executive course. And uh, we have nice student housing. We have, I don't know how many uh, apartments we have now because it's been added to, but, but uh, we're, and we have a, a one, one dormitory and they're in the process of now building some more dormitories. Uh, so it's very nice, the buildings are spaced nice, the grounds are kept you know, beautiful, we wanna keep it nice so students feel comfortable here and they, someplace they wanna to go to. And, uh, and how many students enroll these days? There's probably, the, the main one of course is the Indian student count, the one that, that uh, we get reimbursed for. And we have about 600 of those this semester, this past semester. And we have about 300 others, so enrollment's around 900. Has COVID affected the enrollment? COVID? Oh yeah, it's had an impact because we had to go online with our classes. And some of them were online and, or they could come in person if they felt safe enough or they could be online. And, and it was amazing, we held up our enrollment pretty well through all that. The faculty really rolled up their sleeves and and uh, did some good work with that online learning. Yeah. So you've been away now for, you know, 10 years. What do you miss the most? Well, I miss, uh, you know, association going down to the university and knocking around with you guys and, and uh, talking to our students and trying to find ways to, you know, get programs going with the University system. I miss uh, the uh, Board of Regent meetings. I always went to them to keep them posted what we were doing, and and uh, and then uh, every two years we'd go to the legislature and tell our story and try to get money for the non-Indian students, and uh, I miss all of that. And uh, the colleagues in the uh, tribal colleges, we were, you know, we'd meet three or four times a year and have committees do things together. And and uh, what I loved about the as a tribal councilman, I, I served on the Northwest Affiliated Tribes. It's the tribes organized, 
joined this organization from Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, <coughs> Wyoming, and and we're always reacting, always reacting. I see what the government does something, we'd react. And what I loved about the tribal colleges and my colleagues is we were always on the offense. You know, we get one thing done, we're after something else. And uh, the congressmen, senators, we never let up on them. <laughs> and I miss that part too. So th- you put in 33 years or so as a, as a you know, pre- founder and president of, uh, of the college. Um, what are you involved with now? What's keeping you busy now? I know you're very active, but can you share with our listeners uh, what post-college life has been like for you? Well, I try to let down slowly. I had, you know, quite a few good assignments at first, but I'm slowly kind of getting out of them. Uh, Larry and I got this ABLE business going in our national organization that we're trying to get going, and, and we have a good director now, and we don't have to do much, but promote, yeah, help promote it locally. <clears throat> so I'm doing that, and we have a foundation here at the college, and I serve on that foundation. And then uh, my great-grandfather was a Hudson Bay fur trader, and he came to the valley and established a trading post halfway between Pablo and St. Ignatius. And uh, that trading post is still in the family. And uh, so I'm very much involved in trying to promote the fur trade and promote that trading post. The original building still stands. I mean, it was built in 1847 and it's still there. It's amazing. And uh, the cemetery's there where the old fellow's buried and we try to maintain all of that. And so that, that keeps me keeps me pretty busy. So, and then I'm helping, uh, we have a great historian here, Bob Biggert. He's published over, I suppose, 70 books by now. But he got me going with him and we've been doing local history books. And uh, so we published about seven and we're working on we're working on uh, kind of neat now is past uh, athletes, ath- outstanding athletes, you know, starting from 1890, you know, up to present time. And we're, mm-hmm. we're about at 1837 now or 38. <laughs> and going to write, you know, feature some people in, these, in, a, in a book. So our posterity will understand and know the people that, you know, that was what happened. It's pretty amazing the things we're finding. And uh, Bob is a great researcher. I'm going through a whole bunch of uh, printouts from the Missoulian now about the 36-37 great football team. And, and we had a tribal member, my cousin Archie McDonald was on that team. He was the biggest lineman of the bunch and uh, played on those two teams. So, so that's where we're at now. So we know the reservation has spawned lots of interesting People and businesses. I mean, S and K Technologies. What what's entrepreneurism like now on on uh, the Salish Kootenai Reservation? I think it's very good. You know, on the you know they're doing very well with the Kerr Dam. They changed it to the name of the uh, One Tribe Eclipse Bay <coughs> Dam. Uh, they're they're doing very well now. Uh, the Lesson K Technologies, which is a group that gets contracts as a minority contractor. And then they contract with the large aviation companies to do the work. They're <clears throat> they're doing very well in the S and K electronics, where they compete for putting together electronic equipment. Uh, they seem to be doing very well. Uh, 
the tribe just now uh, with the water compact, that's a big thing that's taking place now, and, and they're undergoing trying to figure out ways to manage the water compact. And then the big challenge is the bison range. The government turned the bison range over to the tribe with no money. It's a big thing now trying to figure out how to make that pay and uh, do itself. As far as small business, we're getting a, a few more people in small business, but it's not taking off like you'd like it to. We, th we thought with our entrepreneur program, we might get more small business operators, but there may be more than you know. I don't know. I just don't know them all. Yeah. Looking back from your perspective now, is there anything you would have done differently? I think if uh, with the college, we're struggling to get students and we're trying to get them jobs and get them uh, the background so they could qualify for a job. Uh, we didn't push the language as much as we should have. I think if I do it again, I guess I would put more of a language component in. We're catching up now, but it's a catch up and uh, doing quite well now. Our college here has special programs, training language teachers and, and working with the cultural committees and, and they're doing quite a bit now. That's probably the one thing I would have done. Oh, the other thing, uh, Arnie too. Yeah. I would have gotten an athletic program going. <laughs> so what could you share with our listeners who are in, in education like you were, or they're you know, uh, looking to start a, a human service or a community-based organization? You know, what can you share with them about building a non-governmental organization, a community-based organization from the ground up? What's your advice to someone looking to take on some sort of challenge similar to what you did? Well, I think what helped us was the base. You know, we had a strong uh, base, uh, culture committee wanting culture, uh, that we had the the uh, motivation of the Self-Determination Act. Uh, we call it 93-638, Self-Determination. Uh, we, we had that for a base and, and uh, really gave us good motivation. To just start <coughs> flat, I think you need some kind of, some kind of ground force, you know, that you'd have to develop or get together so you have some support because you just can't go out there alone. And I would I would would never have gotten any place trying to start a college by myself without a lot of great workers and, and great ground support. Because even even then, uh, after we got going pretty well, they'd still take us on. Some tribal members would take us on, you know, and uh, we always had that support of those cultural people. The elders, they always really supported us, and, and uh, so I really did appreciate that. So you have to have some kind of a support, I think, uh, and once you, once you sense that and you feel that you got that support and you got, you got some backing, then you can start and start small, one step at a time. <laughs> Joe, it, it's, it's been delightful talking to you and reviewing the history and, and seeing all the accomplishments you've uh, you've uh, been involved with and uh, I look forward to hearing more great things about what you're doing in the future. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Ernie. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. It's my pleasure. I appreciate your listening to Can Do, produced by Lena Beck in association with Montana Public Radio. For comments, recommendations for future guests, or general information, please go to mtpr.org. 
There you'll find previous guest contact information and content from all our shows. Listen next time when we'll recap the 2021 economy and look at what 2022 might have in store for us. I'm Arnie Sherman, wishing you good health and prosperity.